Please turn your Bibles to Judges, Judges chapter 8. As you turn there, just a couple things uh, as we think about life as a church family and ways in which we can improve in our ability to, to care for one another. Of course, want to commend the, the counseling conference, the discipleship and counseling conference, uh, two weekends from now. I encourage you to be a part of that as we think about how to love one another well. Also, as we think about loving well, uh, this Saturday, there's going to be an opportunity for you to be a part of a safe families training, so you can uh, look in your uh, weekly about some more, for some more, more information about that, or you can see that in your um, uh, on our website, more information about being a part of safe families and caring for children and uh, their families as they uh, sometimes encounter some, some points in life where they need some extra care. So please consider being a part of that if you haven't already. Well, we're in Judges 8, and remember we're looking at the story of Gideon, and Gideon uh, last week we saw is able to accomplish by God's hand this amazing victory over the Midianites and the Amorites, and so we're, we're seeing that continued story in Judges chapter 8. I'm going to read Judges chapter 8, and if you're able to, if you would stand with me for part of that, I'll have you sit down at some point. But uh, stand with me in honor of God as we read his word together, if you're able. And I'm going to begin in verse 1 of Judges chapter 8. Then the men of Ephraim said to Gideon, him, What is this that you have done to us not to call us when you went to fight against Midian? And they accused him fiercely. And he said to them, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of Abiezer? God has given into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb, and Zeb. What have I been able to do in comparison with you? And then their anger against him subsided when he said this. And Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over, he and the 300 men who were with him, exhausted yet pursuing. And so he said to the men of Succoth, Please give loaves of Bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted. And I am pursuing after Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. And the officials of Succoth said, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hand that we should give bread to your army? So Gideon said, Well then, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmunna into my hand, then I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. And from there he went up to Penuel. And spoke to them in the same way, and the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Succoth had answered. And he said to the men of Penuel, When I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. Now Zeba and Zalmunna were in Karkor with their army, about 15,000 men, all who were left of all the army of the people of the east, for there had, been, there had fallen 120,000 men who drew the sword. And Gideon went up by the way of the tent dwellers east of Noba and Jogbaha, and attacked the army, for the army felt secure. And Zeb and Zalmunna fled, and he pursued them and captured the two kings of Midian, Zeb and Zalmunna, and he threw all the army into a panic. Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from the battle by the ascent of Huraz, and he captured a young man of Succoth and questioned him, and he wrote down for him the officials and elders of Succoth, 77 men. And he came to the men of Succoth and said, Behold, Zeba and Zalmunna, about whom you taunted me, saying, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hand, that we should give bread to your men who are exhausted? 
And he took the elders of the city, and he took thorns of the wilderness and briars, and with them taught them and have sucked the lesson. And he broke down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. You may be seated as I continue reading. In verse 18, Then he said to Zeba and Zalmunna, Where are the men whom you killed at Tabor? And they answered, As you are, so were they. Every one of them resembled the son of a king. And he said, They were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had saved them alive, I would not kill you. And so he said to Jether, his firstborn, Rise and kill them. But the young man did not know did not draw his sword, for he was afraid, because he was still a young man. Then Zeba and Zalmunna said, Rise yourself and fall upon us, for as the man is, so is his strength. And Gideon arose and killed Zeba and Zalmunna, and he took the crescent ornaments that were on the necks of their camels. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. And Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And Gideon said to them, let, let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me the earrings from his spoil. For they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, we will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak, and every man threw in it the earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold, besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian and besides the collars that were around the necks of their camels. And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city, in Ophrah. And all Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more, and the land had rest for forty years in the days of Gideon. Jerubel, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had seventy sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives, and his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he called his name Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash, his father, at at Ophrah in, uh, of the Abiezrites. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Bereth their God. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jerubel, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. And Heavenly Father, we do recognize uh, this morning as we look at the story of, of Gideon, uh, your kindness in saving us, and then your great love in sustaining us. We pray that you would be kind, to, uh, continue your kindness to us as even, even now as we look at the story. Help us to rightly understand the truth here and to apply it to our lives. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Paul's last letter to his young pastor friend Timothy is 2 Timothy, and the letter ends, kind of part of it at least, on a, on a sad note. Tim, Paul is telling Timothy about 
his, his loneliness. And, and there's this very sad verse, I think it's uh, 2 Timothy 4.10, where Paul tells Timothy that he, he's been deserted, and he says, Demas, in love with the present world, has deserted me. And, and that's so sad because we see Demas mentioned other places in Scripture. There's, there's two other letters that Paul writes, and as he writes these letters earlier in his life, Paul talks about Demas, and Demas sends, he's there with Paul, and he sends his greetings to the people that Paul is writing to. So I think it's uh, Philemon and Colossians. Demas is, is there with Paul. He's this faithful co-laborer with Paul. But then when you get to 2 Timothy, at the end of Paul's ministry, Demas has not finished well. He's decided that the, the hardships of following in Paul's ministry are not worth it, and he loves the present world more than he loves God, and so so he abandons Paul, and, and he abandons the ministry to which he had committed himself. It's tragic. It's sad. And all of us who've been in the church long enough, I'm sure, can think of stories of people who have not finished well, ministries that have not finished well. This past week, someone showed me a, a booklet from a church that was published 15 years ago and, and looked at the, 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 the page with the elders and, and the people who are elders on that page 15 years ago at the church. None of them are, are still elders of the church, and some had left for good reasons, but, but some had left for bad reasons. They had not finished well. I was talking with another person about their church, and we talked about 20 years ago that the people who were elders of the church, none of them are still in leadership Today, and, and all of those ministries at that church had, had ended poorly. They had not finished well. It's sad, but it's common. It's hard to finish well, and oftentimes it doesn't happen. And not just in pastoral ministry, parenting being a manager, a Sunday school teacher, a small group leader. There are many examples of ministries, shepherding ministries that God has called us to, and, and there's, there's faithfulness for a time, but we don't finish well. By God's grace this morning, I would trust that all of us who would say, you know, whatever shepherding ministry God has called me to as, as a parent, as a, as a team captain, as a CEO, as, as a manager, whatever shepherding ministry God has called me to, small group leader, elder, pastor, deacon, I, I want to finish by God's grace well. And yet, all of us, I hope in this room, would be humble enough to say, I know it's not a given. I know it's possible that I will not finish well. It's certain that I will not finish well if left to my own strength. I desperately need God's strength and enabling to finish well, what hope do we have? The hope that we have, of course, is not in ourselves, but in our perfect shepherd. Listen to how Scripture describes Jesus. Isaiah 40, 11 describes a, a day when, when Jesus will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those 
that are with young. In, in Ezekiel 34, God talks about the wicked shepherd, but then he promises a good shepherd. He says that he's going to set up a shepherd who will feed his flock. He will feed them and be their shepherd. Jesus proclaims in John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And the writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the great shepherd of the sheep. And the good news for you and me in the ministries of shepherding that God has called us to, the good news is that, that we aren't left alone in these ministries. God in his grace provides us with the great shepherd to come alongside us and, and as we're in him, as we're in the great shepherd, by God's grace, he grows us in our shepherding ministries and allows us, by his grace and by his enabling, to become more and more like him, the perfect shepherd. And as I think about my own weaknesses as a shepherd, with my family, with the, the staff that I'm called to, to help shepherd, the elders that I'm called to help co-shepherd, the church, as I think about all the ways in which I fail in my shepherding, by God's grace, it is incredibly encouraging to me to know that in Christ, I'm not completed yet. That there's still, there's still time, by God's grace, to continue in my shepherding growth. I think I mentioned a few weeks ago, uh, finding this, this paper that my dad had written when he was 24 years old. And he talked about what his goals were for the next year and the next five years, the next 10 years, and then the next 50 years, he said, if, if the Lord wills, which ultimately the Lord did not. But he said, okay, th th these are my goals. Now, what was interesting to me about this, this paper was that he didn't start with the next 12 months. He said, okay, here's where I want to be at, at the end of my ministry. Here's how, here's how I want the end of my life to look. And now because that's how I want the end of my life to look, here's what it means in terms of growth this next year and then five years and then 10 years and so forth. And so that's, I think, a very wise way for us to think about our ministry. Where do we want to be? If the Lord doesn't return, you know, Mike mentioned earlier, maybe the Lord would return even today. But if he doesn't, what do we want the end of our ministry to look like? Okay, if that's what we want the end of our ministry to look like, what is the growth that I need the great shepherd to be doing in my life now to allow me to finish the ministries that he's called me to, to finish those well in a way that glorifies him? No matter what age we are, it's a question we need to be thinking about. How do I finish well? How does God need to be growing me now to allow me to finish the ministry he's called me to well? We're in the book of Judges, and in the story we're looking at this morning, we see someone who doesn't finish well. Remember, the book of Judges is about the, the need for a king. And over and over again, we, we see in the book of Judges that the need for, for the, a great king, and we see judge after judge offer deliverance, offer salvation for the people, but it's a, it's a temporary salvation. This judge is not able to, to change hearts. And there's a, a yearning as you come, especially to the end of the book of Judges, a yearning for a great king who will be able to, to shepherd his people well, who will be able to, to change and transforms, transform hearts so that people can experience the joy of living in relationship with God. And as we see the failures of each judge, it points us more and more through negative examples to what we find positively in Christ. And, and this morning we see in Gideon a very negative story, a very sad story. But in that, that sorrow that we see in Gideon in his life, we experience 
encouragement as we think about how our shepherd needs to change us. Here's the main idea, the big idea I want us to think through as we look at Gideon's life in the end and contrast it with Christ. The growing shepherd continues to look, act, and think more like Christ. The growing shepherd, the shepherd who is aware of, of his or her need for Christ and then desires to finish well and understands, okay, I'm, I'm not where I need to be, but by God's grace, the great shepherd is changing me and helping me become more like him. That, that person continues, by God's grace, as they continue to look to the great shepherd, they continue to look and act and think more like Jesus Christ. And let's look here then, as we go through the story of Gideon, Let's look at, at three marks of a growing shepherd, three things that we see are true of a shepherd who is growing. Here's the first thing. The growing shepherd, the growing shepherd, the shepherd who's become more like Christ, becomes more gracious and less bitter. Walk through the, the story with me, if you would. Look down at your Bibles, if you have them there. We're in Judges 8. And let's look back just a little bit at Judges 7. Remember, Gideon has thrown the Midianites into confusion, and they, they begin to, to rout the army, and the, the Midianites begin to flee. They're, they're kind of around the Sea of Galilee, and they're kind of fleeing down to the south and to the east, trying to make their way back to the desert. And in order to do so, they go through the land of Ephraim, the, the land that's allotted to the Ephraimites. And Gideon calls out to the Ephraimites, hey guys, help us. And so the Ephraimites help him. They capture two of the captains. They kill them. And then we come into chapter 8, and the Ephraimites are kind of ticked off. They, they approach Gideon, and it says they, they, they talk to him fiercely. They're upset. They say, why are we just now being called out? Gideon is now facing not just external threats from the Midianites, from the enemies, now he's facing internal challenges as well. They're upset that they hadn't been part of the initial fight against Midian, and they, they, they accuse him fiercely. There's this dissension, this moment where there should have been great rejoicing about the salvation that Yahweh had, had brought about. Instead, there's this, this not just grumbling, but this, this intense anger. And I think Gideon handles it well. He says, look, guys, you did an amazing thing. Think about the harvest of the Ephraimites versus the, the harvest of my clan. If we just did a little thing. You guys have done something rather remarkable, and they, for a moment, are placated by that. But the internal strife continues. Now, remember, Gideon's he's chasing the Midianites. They cross the Jordan, so they're going into the east. And remember, the, the Midianites are trying to make their way back into the desert. And he comes to this first town. He's with his 300 guys, and they are exhausted. They're tired. They come to this first town of Succoth, and they say, Okay, uh, we need some bread. We need, to, we need to continue this fight. Give us some bread. Give us some nourishment. Let us continue to, 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 to chase these Midianites. And these these guys on the east side of the river are hesitant. They tell Gideon, look, Gideon, uh, you don't have them in your hand yet. We're not exactly sure how this is going to play out, so, so, so we're not going to help you. If, if we help you now, and you're not, you and your 300 guys aren't successful against these thousands of men, then they're, go they're going to come back stronger than ever, and we're going to face the, the brunt of their anger. So Gideon says, fine, 
I don't have time to deal with this right now, but once I do have time to deal with this, you are not going to be happy. And he keeps on chasing him. Comes to this next town, Penuel, and he says the same thing. Hey guys, I've got 300 guys here. We're hungry. We're famished. We need energy and, and, and food in order to be able to continue our fight against these guys. And the people of Penuel say the same thing. Well, God, not yet. You haven't accomplished your, your victory yet. And Gideon says, okay. When I come back, I'm going to tear down this tower. I'm going I'm to deal with you. Gideon is, is facing these, these internal challenges that, that the people that he is supposed to be encouraged by and, and fighting with instead are encountering, he's encountering challenges with them. As a, as a shepherd, he's in this position of leadership and he's, he's struggling to, to determine what to do here. Earlier, earlier, as we went through Judges 7, over and over again we see Yahweh acting. Remember we saw God does this and God does this and God does, God brings about this, this salvation. Now, as you read through chapter 8, what's interesting is, is we're wondering, is Gideon going to respond the same way? Is he going to trust Yahweh like he did in chapter 7? Remember chapter 7, he trusts Yahweh and, 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 he, and he worships God as he sees God work his salvation. Is Gideon going to respond the same way this time as he deals with threats, not just external challenges, not just external, but these internal, internal challenges as well? How is he going to respond? Well, meanwhile... As he's dealing with all that, meanwhile, the Midianites are fleeing. You know, they're continuing to make their way. Look at verse 10. It says they're in Karkor with their army. There's about 15,000. Remember, Gideon just has 300 men. There's these 15,000 men, but it's, it's a fraction of what they had originally. Originally, they had 120,000 men who drew the sword. And they're, they're making their way back into the desert, and they are feeling secure. They've arrived at a point where they feel secure and safe, and that's when Gideon comes upon them. And again, he takes them from a position of security to panic, we see in verse 12. They begin to spread in panic. The victory again is incredible. And again, there should have been rejoicing. How will Gideon respond? In chapter 7, he sees God working and responds in grace. God responds in grace to Gideon and Gideon responds in worship. Now, how is Gideon going to respond to the internal threat, the internal challenge with these other cities? Gideon returns in verses 13 through 17. And we see Gideon responding with fury. Now, now think about Gideon from chapter 7. What, what have we noticed about Gideon in chapter 7? Gideon in chapter 7 was, was not a strong leader. He was weak. How many times did he, did he ask God, hey, God, how do I know that what you're saying you're going to do, you're going to actually do? Gideon is not unlike the people in these two cities that challenged him. 
just like the people in the two cities, he's doubtful that God is going to bring about the victory that God promises. And he wants signs. He wants to say, hey, I want proof. Before I stick my neck out, I want proof that you're going to do what you say you're going to do, God. The people of the city are kind of the same way with Gideon. Now, where, how does God respond to Gideon? God is incredibly gracious to Gideon throughout chapter 7. Throughout chapter 7, okay, you want a dry fleece and wet ground, fine. You want a wet fleece and dry ground, fine. You, you want a, another sign, okay, go and listen to what the Midianites are, are saying. God again and again bestows grace upon Gideon. And now God has brought about salvation. He brought about salvation in chapter 7. Now again he brings about this great victory. And, and Gideon doesn't respond with grace. Oftentimes in the Old Testament, you, you see stories of, of people accomplishing victory and responding with grace to those who've done them wrong. So, for example, even Saul, as Saul begin, King Saul begins his kingship, there's some worthless people who say, this guy shouldn't reign over us. God brings about a victory. And people say, we should punish those people who doubted Saul. Saul says, no, 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 let's, let's be gracious. God has brought a victory, so let's be gracious, just like God has been gracious to us. David does the same thing. He accomplishes a victory, and he's, he's gracious to people who weren't a part of that victory. Gideon is not gracious. Gideon acts like a Canaanite. He is ruthless. He takes the men of the first city and he says, I, I told you I'd punish you. And he takes them. He, he, has, he captures a young person, an, a fellow Israelite. He captures them and then he takes fellow Israelites. He has this, 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 this young man write down all the names of the elders of the city. Then he goes in the city. He finds every one of the 77 elders and he takes them out and publicly whips them, humiliating them. And then his fury is not abated. He goes to the next town, and he said he was going to tear down the tower. He does that, and then he kills all the men of the city. This is a, a ruthlessness, indicative not of a, not of a king, or not of a, of a servant of God, but of, of a king of the Canaanites. Gideon is responding with, with fury. Now, now, what the people had done was, was wrong, but, but Gideon's response is not a gracious proportional response. There's not graciousness and victory here. There's not a point into Yahweh's mercy and grace. This is a, a, a person who's treating his fellow Israelites like Canaanites. And then, then we see him continue with his ruthfulness. Look at verses 18 through 21. He, he comes to the kings of the Midianites, these two men that he's captured. He's, and, and if he was ruthless toward his fellow Israelites, how much more ruthless is he going to be to these two kings? He talks to them, and he says, where are the men whom you killed at Tabor? And they, they say they were like the son of a king. And he tells them, those were my brothers. They were the sons of my mothers. They, they'd killed his brothers. And he says, uh, if you had saved them, I would not kill you. And then he wants to humiliate them further. And so he tells his, his young son, hey, I want you to kill them. His son hesitates, not able to do it. And so Gideon, after being taunted by the two kings, kills them. There's personal vengeance, not a desire for justice, a desire to humiliate, not just defeat the, his enemies. Chapter 7 has Yahweh, God, bringing about salvation and Gideon responding with worship. In this chapter, we see Gideon responding with brutality, with, with vengeance and bitterness, not the way that God responded to him 
There's a self-focus, not a Yahweh focus on the part of Gideon. The growing shepherd, the person who is emulating the, the great shepherd, is going to be a person who is becoming more gracious and less bitter as life goes on. One, one pastor writing about this passage had this caution. He says, look, here's instruction for us. Sometimes the people of God are a great disappointment, and if you don't know that, you may not survive in the church or whatever ministry God has called you to. He says, don't allow God's people to disillusion you. At least be prepared for it. The question is, how are you going to respond to it? I was reading an article that this past week about uh, pastors who, who didn't finish well. And the author kind of talks about here kind of five characteristics of, of, of pastors who didn't finish well in the ministry. And number four is this. He says, number four they, the, of characteristics of church leaders who didn't finish well, he says, they grew angrier as they grew older. They grew angrier as they grew older. As their time to, towards ministry grew, grew to a close, their tone became louder, angrier, more belligerent. They were blurting complaints that the people who loved them opined of the, the many angry and voicemails they were receiving from them. Why is that? Why, why does that happen? Why, why are we tempted toward that? I've been thinking a lot about this in, in various areas of ministry, and a point that I've just been thinking of for my own soul and, 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 and others, and really just as a Christian. As, as time goes on, as, as you get older, you really have to do one of two things, right? You have to become an either a more gracious person or a more bitter person. You, you, you have to make a decision. You know, if you're a person in, in, in ministry, you're, you're a parent, you're a pastor, you're a Sunday school teacher, you're in the, the, the secular workplace trying to, to care for other people, the, the longer you go, the, the more bad things are going to happen. Uh, imagine this. Imagine every six months someone does something kind of terrible to you, right? Every six months someone wrongs you in a significant way. Now, over a year, that means two, there's, there's two people out there who maybe done something really, really bad to you. But you continue for 10 years. Now you're talking about 20 incidences, right? You continue for, for 30 years. Now you're talking about 60. I mean, that's, that's a lot of stuff to deal with. And, and one of two things has to happen. Either you're going to think about those things and become more bitter and more upset, or as you grow in Christ, becoming more and more like your, your great shepherd, you're going to become a, a less bitter person. Now, if you're a person who really struggles with wrong, every week someone does something to you, man, that's a lot, 52 times a year. In, in 10 years, you're talking about over 500 things that people have done to you. It, it adds up. So as you grow older, you, you have to make this, as you grow in ministry, you have to make, am I going to become a more gracious person or a more bitter person? I'm not saying we shouldn't deal with sin, of course. I'm, I'm saying as, as I think about the wrongs that maybe have, have happened to me, how, how am I going to respond? In Christ, I become a person that more and more resembles Christ. Here's, here's two thoughts as we think about bitterness and growing in graciousness. First thought would be this. Remember that, that bitterness and vengeance are, are rooted in pride, right? 
bitterness and vengeance are rooted in pride. When I'm a person who is bitter and desires vengeance, I believe, listen to this, when I'm a person who's, who's bitter, I'm a person who believes that my glory is more important than God's glory. I believe that offenses against me are so profound and so heinous that they shouldn't be forgiven. Unlike my offenses against God, I believe that offenses against me are so grave, are so profound, that they should never be forgiven. And it's right for me to be bitter and angry and upset. Ephesians 4.31 tells us, no, 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 this is, this is not right. Gideon is more angry, he is more angry at affronts against him than he is against his, about his affronts against God. Ephesians 4.31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Hebrews 12, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one, fail, no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Colossians 3.8, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Bitterness, my bitterness is rooted in pride, believing that my glory is greater than God's glory. Offenses against me are worthy of more condemnation than offenses against God himself. It's utter folly. The second thing to remember here is that, that graciousness then is rooted in humility. Graciousness is rooted in humility. I, I worship as I realize that I've failed and yet received God's grace. Micah 7, 18 who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? God does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He again will have, this is Micah 7, 19, he will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. A person who is becoming more and more gracious, a person who is becoming more and more aware of God's forgiveness of us. Colossians 3.13, you bear with one another. If one has a complaint against one another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. The growing shepherd becomes more gracious and less bitter. Secondly, the second characteristic of a growing shepherd the growing shepherd, the shepherd who's becoming more and more like the great shepherd, becomes more consumed with leading others to worship God and, and less enamored with the gods of this world. As we become more like our great shepherd, we become more consumed with wanting others to worship him and we become less enamored with the gods of this world, less, less tempted by them. Look what happens to Gideon next. This is kind of a confusing part of the story of Gideon to me. Maybe, maybe it is to you as well. But in verse 22, there's some sort, of, some sort of gathering of the community of Israel who come to Gideon and say, we want you to rule over us. They don't use the word king, but it seems to be implied. We, they want some sort of dynastic rulership that Gideon and his sons will will uh, have over them. And, and Gideon seems in verse 23, and, and the request, of course, by the way, is wrong. Deuteronomy 17, 15 says the Lord was to, sh to choose the king. 
but uh, Gideon's response seems right. He says, I'm not going to do over the, do, rule over you. I'm not going to do this. Uh, the Lord will rule over you. But then everything that happens next in Gideon's life seems to undercut the answer that he gives in verse 23. First of all, and, and most tragically, he makes this request for them to, to give him all of this gold, and they give him this, this gold, like 40-something pounds of, of gold, and he makes an ephod. Now, what was an ephod? An ephod was like this, this tunic that a priest would wear, and in the Old Testament we see it described in Exodus 28, Exodus 39, and, and there was this, this, this tunic, and on the tunic was a breastplate, breastplate with four rows and, and three columns, and it had these 12 stones in it, and there was, it, was, it was used to determine God's will. There was a, a pouch on it that had the umum thermum, and they, the priest would use that to determine what God's will was. Now, what Gideon seems to be doing here, at least, is creating some sort of, 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 of tunic. And we think that maybe he created this, this idol, and, and the, the tunic went over this, this image that he creates. And here's, here's the really ironic part, right? Look, look what happens. It says that he... Um, he puts it in the city, and he puts it in the city of Ophir. Now, why is that significant? That's the exact city that he had, his city, from which he had removed the altar to Baal. And now, as he comes to the end of the, his ministry, he undermines the very thing he did at the beginning of his shepherding ministry and deliver, ministry of deliverance. He now creates a false god for the people to worship. The problem that the Israelites face for the first time in the book of Judges, and this is tragic, the problem is not some external force. It's now the judge, the deliverer himself, who's leading the people down a path of idolatry. The deliverer is leading the people into a time of destruction. A shepherd must pursue something. And as a shepherd, as a mom, as a business leader, the people whom you shepherd are going to be affected by what you pursue. And the people who are under our shepherding ministries are going to be far more affected by, by what we actually do than what we say. When my mom was, was here this last weekend, we were, we were talking about how the kids were doing, and, and she, she mentioned, she goes, I'm, uh, it's amazing to me how much the boys uh, un- unintentionally just, just seem to, to imitate some of your mannerisms and, and thoughts and, and opinions and things like that. And uh, I thought about it. I said, you know, that there's there's a lot of truth to that. I, I watch it with other kids and uh, who are my, my my kids' age, and just watch how they they interact with their parents. I, I know their dads, and I watch the sons. Like, man, that, that son is just a lot like his father in in ways that you know, ways that I don't think anyone's even aware of. Sometimes I think about the values of my own father you know he says a lot my dad said a lot of really good things but I don't think that I don't think I ever really understood why I was emulating until I, until I stepped back a couple years being out of the house and realized you know my what my dad did was far more impactful than what he said 
it was far more impactful for me to get up early in the morning, walk by his room and see him see him praying and reading the Bible before anyone else was up as far as he knew. That was far more impactful for me than him telling me, hey, Daniel, you should read your Bible. What, what I'm saying is this. As we, be, as we are shepherds who are growing, if we become more consumed with God and more in love with God, other, the people that we're shepherding are going to see that as well, even in ways that they may not fully understand. And it's going to be far more impactful on their lives and on their e- eternal destinies than just the things that we say. How are you using your influence in the lives of those in the workplace, the school, your school, home, the people who are you looking, looking to? Passivity and shepherding leads to failure. We have to proactively cultivate worship for God by ourselves loving God. There's that, that hymn, uh, The Heavenly Vision from 1922 that, that I think says it well in, in terms of at least this part of the song. Mike would have to check me on the rest of the song. I don't, I don't know. Um, but remember, it says, turn your eyes upon Jesus, right? It says, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And, w- and what happens? It says, the things of earth will grow, yeah, strangely dim in what? In the light of his glory and grace. As people that we're shepherding look at us and say that that person loves God, and they see that as we grow in our love for God and become more consumed with love for God, we're going to be less consumed with the, the trinkets and treasures of this world, and we're going to say, my treasure is Christ, and that's going to be what they emulate. Here's the last characteristic I want us to think about. The growing shepherd, the growing shepherd becomes more focused on serving others and less tempted by the lure of power. The growing shepherd, the shepherd is becoming more like Christ, is going to become more and more consumed and focused on how can I serve others, and, and the, the temptation to personal power is going to decrease. Uh, Daniel Block, as he comments on this paragraph, says, look, by this point in the story, as we come to verse 29, Gideon has already begun to follow the typical pattern of, of kings of this culture. He treats his, his subjects ruthlessly like a Canaanite king. His actions are driven by a, by a by personal vendetta, by, by a personal agenda more than theological or national ideals. He, he reacts to the death of his brothers like they're royal assassinations. He, he makes ridiculous demands of his people in verse 20. He, he claims for himself the symbols of royalty that are taken from the enemy. Those are, are his symbols. He, he, he begins to act like a king, even if with his words he denies it. He sets himself up as the head of the religious direction of the people. And, and now, as we come to these verses, he begins to rule from his hometown like a Canaanite king. He establishes this large harem, and he fathers many children. This is a direct violation of instructions for a king in Deuteronomy 17. He has a, a concubine. He elevates himself above the law. And if, if that weren't enough, even though he said, hey, look, I, I don't want to be a king. I don't want to rule over you. What, what does he name his son? The name of his son means the king is my father. <laughs> Not too subtle, Gideon. Right? This is not what God had envisioned. This is not how Gideon was supposed to end his ministry of shepherding. It's tragic. As we grow in Christ... 
the idea of exalting ourselves should become more and more repugnant. The idea of exalting ourselves and, 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 and having others look to us and, and, and serve us, it, it should become more and more repugnant as we grow in Christ. It's like whenever uh, my wife finds out that someone is, is not feeling well and she says, okay, we should, she, so she finds that out and she calls the person and she says, okay, uh, what are your, you know, what can I make for you? And then she goes to the grocery store and she buys all the groceries and then she, then she makes the meal and then she, and then she takes it over to their, their house and she sets it up all nice or whatever. And, and then uh, the, the people see me and they say, Daniel, thanks so much for that meal, you know. Uh, it just feels off, right? You know, and then it's it's a profuse. Oh, thanks! That's so. Thanks for caring for us. I'm like, look, this. I did nothing, but I will gladly, you know, pass on the thanks. Right. As we grow in Christ, more and more, it becomes re- repugnant. It, it just feels off for people to, to serve us. It, it, it's it's wrong. It's 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 ridiculous. We see the greatness of our, our shepherd, and we want to point others to him. John Bloom has a, an article about the marks of a servant leader, and he talks about how the New Testament describes a servant leader. A servant leader, a couple characteristics he mentions here of a, a person who's growing in their ability to serve. A servant leader is a person who's seeking the glory of his master. A servant leader sacrificially seeks the highest joy of those whom he serves or she serves. A servant leader forgoes his rights rather than obscures the gospel. Paul in 1 Corinthians 9.19, I've made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. A servant leader is not preoccupied with personal visibility and recognition. A servant leader, listen to this, a servant leader anticipates and graciously accepts the time for his decrease. John the Baptist in John 3 says, This joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. It's tragic. But Gideon has the exact wrong understanding of leadership, of shepherding. The growing shepherd becomes more focused on serving others and recognizing I want Christ to increase in my ministry while I decrease. There is no other way. There is no other way for me to finish well other than that. The only way I can finish well in ministry, ministry as a parent, ministry as a pastor, Ministry is a small group leader. The only way I can finish well is if there is less of me and more of Christ at the end of my ministry than there is now. The growing shepherd continues to look, act, and think more like Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Son. We thank you for the ability we have in him to come before you. And we pray in the different areas in which you've called us to shepherd, we would be faithful to point people to your son, Jesus, that they would be united with him through faith so that they could in turn exalt and love and praise him. We pray this in his name. Amen.